This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And you are tuned to The Grapevine and we've spoken a few times on the show over the past two years about the treaty process that's underway in Victoria. The movement towards a treaty between Victoria's First Nations and the state government took another step forward with the appointment of Jill Gallagher AO last year. Uh, Jill Gallagher is a Gunjipmara woman from Western Victoria and was head of the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation for 17 years and she was there for 20. Uh, she was also co-chair of the Aboriginal Treaty Working Group that this month released its final recommendation for the design of the Aboriginal representative body that's going to negotiate treaty with the government. And we're really pleased to have Jill Gallagher here in studio. Welcome to Triple R. And uh, look, this process has been, uh, you know, two years. There's been a lot of work's gone in and we now have the Victorian Treaty Advancement Commission. You are the commissioner and um, congratulations on that role. What are you going to do? Oh, very good question. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for the invite. You might have to move a little bit closer to your mic. That's perfect. Thanks. Very good question and thanks for the invite. Um, I've been on Triple R before, so... um, Welcome back. Thank you. I'm not all that nervous. (laughs) Um, But yes, two years ago, well, many years now, Aboriginal people in Victoria have long called for treaty. It's not a new ask. It's been around for as long as I can remember anyways. There's been a lot of activism in the past. Um, But two years ago, um, that call was heard uh, by the government. So when they held their self-determination forum and asked the Aboriginal community, what is self-determination? The Aboriginal community surely told the government, we want treaties. So... And hence the treaties were taken serious, um, that, that, that call and put on the table. But the challenge was, who does the Victorian government talk to? Uh, that was a big challenge. Um, and so a mechanism needed to be established to work that out. Uh, and the Aboriginal Treaty Interim Working Group was established, which I was co-chair of. Um, uh, up until late last year, I was co-chair of the Treaty Working Group. Uh, and their role was to work out a, a design for a representative body. Um, so who could the government negotiate treaties with? So <clears throat> their report was finalised just recently. Um, but prior to that, there was a lot of engagement out there with Aboriginal people in Victoria. There was also, towards the end of last year, we actually um, um, had a community assembly. So the aim of the community assembly was to bring together um, Aboriginal people from across Victoria um, and we wanted to ensure that we had elders, we wanted to ensure that we had a youth voice, um, some expertise from various areas um, and their role was to actually look at um, the working group's recommendations about a legal framework for a representative body and um, to test it, uh, to argue against it to come up, tweak it or come up with other ideas. And so their report was also very important, their recommendations. And that those two pieces of work will lead my work as the uh, Treaty Advancement Commissioner. Um, so my main role is to actually 
develop, design and implement a, a Victorian Aboriginal representative body. And so in a way, it's a, it's a transitional role, as I understand. The Commission will hopefully yes. and eventually cease to exist once that, that body is, is set up. Is that is that the plan? That's my understanding, yes. And, uh, and nor will the working group uh, still, because the working group still exists there mm. to support me in my role. And so to, apart from apart from developing a representative body, uh, so in other words, a voice to the to the government, um, my role is also to go out and talk, continue to talk and keep treaty on the agenda with the Victorian Aboriginal communities, but also the non-Aboriginal communities. So at the moment, myself and my team are developing treaty roadshows where we'll go out for um, a number of days in a particular region and um, just have conversations with Aboriginal people, have conversations with local governments uh, and everyday Victorians uh, to come along and have a conversation about what treaty is. Mm. And how long is this process going to go for? Is it is it is it defined in in years or months? Look, it's 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 not, there's no there's no definite there's no defined time frame. Uh, well, there is for the representative body, by the way. Um, um, hopefully, by mid two thousand and nineteen. Uh, we will have a representative body in place. Um, that's very important because the role of the representative body is to uh, not to um, actually start negotiating a treaty or treaties. The role is to develop a treaty or treaties negotiating framework. Um, so that will help the government you know, if there's going to be one treaty, it's going to be multiple treaties, um, um, and I suspect um, there will be multiple, uh, and what that would cover. If you look at other treaties from around the world, British Columbia, um, uh, basically they still have an ongoing process around treaties when when um, when clans or groups are ready. Uh, there's a process they can go through to actually say we are now ready to negotiate our treaty. Um, so that's what potentially is going to happen in, in relation to the representative body developing that framework. What really stands out to me from um, like listening to you now and also I attended the, the launch of the official launch of the Commission a couple of weeks ago is I guess the importance of that process and um, and that that is an on you know potentially an ongoing one it's not a dialogue that that you shut down once we've achieved a treaty it's something that that is continuing and, and evolving and I think it was um, I think it was Mick Harding at the launch who said something along the lines of you know this is a very um, exciting time this is a time when the government is uh, genuinely engaging with Aboriginal communities from across the state and not just simply seeking consent for a preordained plan and we know that's happened in, in Australia's past frequently. Yes um, and that that is um, what is so exciting um, that we're genuinely being heard and being listened to, hence the commissioner role being established. That was part of the uh, working group's recommendations, the interim working group, um, to maintain that momentum. And um, I really believe that, you know, you talk about timeframes, you can't, you can't put a timeframe on. You can put a timeframe on the process 
um, like the representative body being established. But when it actually starts, when, when the body has developed the um, treaties negotiating framework, that could take years. Not the development, the implementation. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, we all know um, what um, colonisation, the impacts it's had on Aboriginal Australia. Um, here in Victoria, it was it was quite brutal and very quick. Um, so there was a lot of forced removals, a lot of forced movement, people taken off country and putting on missions. There was a lot of devastation. So we've got to now unpack all that um, to ensure that the treaty treaties, if there's local treaties, are negotiated with the right people. And with the state government of Victoria, we have an election coming up later this year. Uh, how will this process kind of, I suppose, bridge over different governments if we have a change of government here and then we might change back in this process if, if yeah. it goes for some years how is that how is the treaty process going to be protected from the political cycle yeah uh, well yeah okay that's a very good question um we currently have the treaty working group has been work as part of their work for the past 18 months has been working on a piece of legislation with state governments uh, and that's quite unique, I might add, I'd like to point out. Usually governments develop legislation and um, and say, this is it. Um, but they've actually developed in partnership with the uh, Treaty Working Group, which was certain members of the Treaty Working Group. We had, we had to have make it a small working group. So uh, that was quite exciting. Um, so that legislation um, has already gone, um, I think, a couple of weeks ago or last week, uh, for its first reading. It's due to go um, on the 28th of March back to Parliament for um, the second process, whatever that is. But what that does, if it's passed and gone through and, and, and is a piece of legislation, it pr protects the representative body, that voice. Um, if it's enshrined in legislation, um, it protects it. If we do, we do have an election coming up this year. Um, but I'm confident uh, that um, all political parties would support this. Yeah, and we might get bipartisan support in yes. that process. Yes. I mean, we've seen at, at the federal level around all the um, debates, I guess, around constitutional recognition and the government walking away from the Uluru Statement from the heart. I wonder what sort of implications this may have on a federal level, given all the work that's going into negotiating and, and advancing this process in Victoria. Do you think this will be something that might be kind of rolled out or, or even sort of picked up and developed by other state governments to, to push that process in I, their state? I would hope so. Um we haven't had Australia hasn't had a, a good track record in the past. Um, the Uluru statement was, I thought, a very modest ask, uh, and it was still canned. Uh, that was very disappointing, um, and for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, uh, again, it's another blow um, to um, us being um, have that recognition. Um, and but not only just recognition, the substantive change that the Uluru Statement could have brought um, to, for the advancement of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across this country. I would hope, if we're successful here, that it would pave the way and show all people 
and all parties uh, that it's not a scary process. It can be done. Um, and, you know, it's not about taking your backyard. It's about that recognition. It's about that uh, empowerment. It's about that voice. And it's about telling the truth. And I don't want to change the topic too much, but you have been at Vacho for, for 20 years and health is incredibly complex. And I wonder... Um, with this treaty process, you know, is it more or less complex than the health, the health sort of issues that you've dealt with over years? Cause that, that they're very, um, uh, intractable, some health issues. They, they, our system is so incredibly complex, but is, does this one look like it's got a, a clearer pathway potentially? I think so. Yes, I believe so. I believe treaties, not just one, I believe treaties are achievable here in Victoria. And are we, I mean, how far are we ahead of other states and, and jurisdictions with treaty discussions? Um, look, uh, I know in South Australia um, they have a treaty commissioner uh, and um, they have been in this space uh, a little bit longer than us in Victoria. So I'm not sure uh, where they're at, but I know they've just had elections um, so that's a bit scary to see what's going to happen in that space. Um, but I think Victoria, uh, in many areas, not just in this space, um, lead the way um, uh, at a political level, at a social level. Um, and um, um, I think we can show the rest of the country how to do it. Well, it's a really exciting time. And I suppose when, when talking about, you know, what the kind of body that you're, um, seeking to form now is going to do, what, what's, what isn't it going to do? What, um, I imagine that, you know, is it, it's not, um, going to, to kind of work for constitutional recognition, things like that. It's very defined what it, what it will work towards. The representative body main focus is to develop a treaty negotiating framework but at the same token it can be broader than that it can it can be a mechanism that um it could be a mechanism that that speaks to government about the health issues here in victoria uh, are we meeting our targets are we on 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 target to close the gap are we meeting our educational uh, outcomes uh, for Aboriginal Victorians. So it can be a lot broader than that, but its main focus is to actually establish a, um, a representative, a, a um, um, treaties negotiating framework. Um, but as I said, it could be broader and do other things. Exciting times. Thank you so it much is. for coming to Triple R. Um, it's wonderful to meet you and Thank welcome you. back to Triple R. And I'm sure that we'll speak to you again through this process. I hope so anyway. I do too. Thank you very much. At the moment, over 2 million refugees from the Syrian war are living in Lebanon. And while they may be safe from the conflict, their situation is far from comfortable. And Middle East researcher Marika Sosnowski and also photographer Darian Trainer have just returned from Lebanon. They've visited informal settlements of people newly arrived from Syria, but also longer-term refugee camps established some 70 years ago and have been home to a few generations of Palestinians. And it's uh, great to have you both back at 3RRR. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And I suppose we should just find out what took you to Lebanon. Why did you go there recently? 
Um, so yeah, the trip this year's trip was part of kind of ongoing research we're doing in the region. Um, we went last year to Jordan and produced some work uh, from about uh, Syrian refugees, particularly um, or refugees in Jordan, uh, on that trip. And the year before that, Darian uh, travelled as well to Israel Palestine, and we produced some work together on Palestinians um, in that region as well. So kind of like the third chapter in the ongoing work on the region. Um, I'm also doing a PhD on um, the Middle East, particularly looking at Syria particularly. So uh, those trips were also to do with some field work for my PhD. But it's great to have the journalism kind of side of it and do it with Darian as well. And I mean, Lebanon, of course, is one of those neighbouring countries of Syria where many, many people have fled um, in the midst of the war over the past seven years. What kind of, I guess, settlements are there for people who are refugees who have fled there from Syria? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we went to Jordan last year. It was really uh, this contrast between what was happening with refugees in Jordan and what was happening in Lebanon was quite stark, actually. So in Jordan, um, uh, like people would know, there's big camps like Zatari, um, and they're kind of quite well established now. There's quite a decent amount of infrastructure. They've almost become cities within their own right, actually. Like Zatari itself is a very small town next to Zatari camp, but actually Zatari camp uh, is much bigger now than the actual town. So it's almost in a way that the actual town. Whereas in Jordan, they're, uh, sorry, in Lebanon, they're very specifically um, not made any camps. Uh, it's actually UNHCR policy, actually not not to have camps for refugees now, and they've followed that. That's for two reasons. So one, because it is uh, UNHCR policy, but the second of all, because Lebanon has its own kind of um, murky history with establishing um, more permanent camps, which it did for um, original Palestinian refugees that came through different waves um, in the last century. So it didn't establish camps uh, for the Syrian refugees that have started, that, came, that have been coming over the last seven years. Um, so they call them, yeah, informal settlements or gatherings. So what you see when you drive around certain areas in Lebanon is kind of um, yeah, gatherings of tents, like they're very um, not permanent at all, uh, very makeshift. They don't have hardly any services. Sometimes they have a little bit of electricity that they're kind of like sucking off the grid. There's very little infrastructure in terms of uh, sewage and irrigation and water supply and those kind of things. And almost um, very much in a way contradictory, um, people don't have a lot of rights in terms of working. So almost a lot of people aren't allowed to leave these kind of little gatherings to to then go and do informal working arrangements um, because they have had stories where they get picked up by the police and then put in jail because they're not allowed to be working or some things like that. So it's much more of an informal arrangement, mm. it seems, in that somewhere like Lebanon to Jordan, actually, yeah. Mm. How is that reflective of UNHCR policy, sorry? How having informal settlements like that? Yeah, so one of their policies, I don't know when they revised it, but it was um, not so much for informal policies, but uh, informal settlements, but it, one of their policies is not to establish uh, camps. So what would they hope would happen in, yeah, instead? So, so there's, there's reasons for that is that, you know, in some ways the logic of it is that camps ca uh, can foster a kind of insecurity as well. And like years ago in Zatari, there was a lot of security issues inside the camp because you've got... Um, a mass amount of people that have been through violence, for example, there might be some people that have been traumatised. Um, sometimes when you put a lot of people, I think in Zatari there was half a million people or more um, together that have those experiences, sometimes it doesn't work out very well. Um, and so 
and they don't have a lot of autonomy sometimes because technically they're meant to stay in the camp. Uh, they're not allowed out. But so the, the logic behind not establishing camps is that people have a lot more autonomy, uh, they can live where they want to live, they're not forced to stay in a location like Zatari that's 100 miles from, you know, anywhere nearly in the middle of the desert essentially, um, and they have more autonomy. So in theory it's in a good theory, approach. In theory it kind of sounds great. Um, in practice doesn't always work play out, out that like way. that yeah mm. and i guess for, for you darian i mean you've um traveled to the to the region previously as as we mentioned earlier what do you look for as a as a photojournalist what are you kind of looking to to capture because it might be quite different for someone who's there for example on a research trip or, or a print journalist who's speaking to people what are you, you kind of seeking to to i guess display to the world yeah i guess um f- for me it, it's a it, it's a slightly different approach in in, in the photojournalism I, I guess you're you would go in and you would document an event. So you, you, you know, in that region, all the work you'd see is, is covering, um, the mass exodus, you know, from, from years ago, or you, you're covering conflict. So if you're covering a war, you're covering something that's, that's happening, an event that's happening. The work I'm doing over there is probably slightly more documentary in that we are trying to meet some of these people and tell their stories. So you, you, finding a fixer or someone who can help you get into a refugee camp, get access to a refugee camp mm. and sit with a family and speak with a family and hear their story. So the photography is very, very different in that um, you can't just walk in there with a camera and start taking photos and invading. But, you know, these people are not uh, zoo animals. You know, you're not there to do that. So you walk in, um, you meet with these people and you sit down and hear their story. So I might not pick up the camera for the first hour. You know, and, and, and you've got to build a rapport and a trust. And what I'm hoping to do is capture them for who they are. So you're trying to take a nice portrait. And if you know, I think I learned very early um, when I travelled to Gaza, uh, it's not about coming back with 400 photos. If I come back with four really great photos, four really great portraits, and I've told someone's story and I've been able to capture them honestly um, and, and give them the, the respect that they deserve. Um, <clears throat> then that's a better approach. Um, things will happen when you're there. Um, so trips like that to, to Gaza when uh, I went on a fishing boat, they were given access to, to fish for the first time at the nine-mile marker. Um, so you cover that like a photojournalist. It's an event. You'd go and, you'd go and cover it. But the, the work that Marika and I do, um, it's much more personal. And so you, you're sitting down with people and, and, and listening to their stories mm-hmm. and, and trying to give them as much time to tell them that story. You can't just sort of breeze in tell me a story and be gone in 10 minutes it it, it may take hours you know mm-hmm. and as is tradition in, in, in sort of the arab world you would sit there and have something to eat first or something to drink first you know you, know, you don't talk business until um you know you've been welcomed with the with the tea or the coffee and, mm-hmm. you, and you get to know these people and build a rapport first so um that's been my approach photographically anyway yeah and what what's the sense from from speaking to people who are in these camps because obviously over the past seven years it's been incredibly volatile in syria and the the circumstances that led people to fleeing would be you know very traumatic in in most circumstances do people have a sense that they kind of may be able to return anytime soon or is it still very much uh in you know still very much unknown i guess where they're at currently um from, from our point of view i guess or I'll speak from my point of view on that, that the Palestinian camps we visited in Beirut, um, you know, they've been there for a very, very long time, 70 years. There's almost a, <clears throat> a resignation that, that that's life now, that's where you'll be. And these, these are generations of Palestinians born in Lebanon, so they've never been to Palestine. Um, 
So they, they are uh, resigned to the fact that that's life. I think a lot of the newly arrived Syrians and, and our experience in Jordan um, was much more upbeat in somewhere like Zatari, the people that might have been there for three years, you know, and they're thinking, okay, when the war finishes, I'll get a chance to go home because they haven't had that, that displacement for generations that some of the Palestinians have had. So um, there is a... There is hope amongst some of them. But then the Syrians um, that we met, say, in the Bekaa Valley in, in, in Lebanon, uh, a lot of those are fleeing the, the, uh, situations that they won't be able to return to. So if you've, you know, you've been of a, a, a male military age and you've fled the country, um, you know, you're probably risking your life going mm-hmm. back to Syria at some point because you're seen as a deserter. You've left, um, you know, and so the regime would probably, you know, kill you on return so that these people are not thinking about return a lot of these people um they're 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 hoping to uh, to find a life elsewhere i guess yeah i think you look i mean the the, always we hear of course they want to return i think that's like the mythology that we have sometimes in australia is that refugees are all want to come here for some unknown reason um but of course every like i don't think there's a person that we speak to when we ask them do you want to go back to syria of course they all say we want to go back but then whether they can actually go back um either because the, there's not, like Darian says, because the political settlement with the Palestinians hasn't happened or in the Syrian case because there's still a massive amount of security concerns about their own uh, status in relationship to the government of Syria, which is often the case with certain people. Um, that option is then uh, not open, but that doesn't mean they don't want to go. Mm. That is not their first option, should it be available, yeah. I mean, in Lebanon itself, how are uh, uh, refugees treated who have come from these kind of conflict zones? There's, I think, around 1.5 million or so who have come from Syria alone, at least on numbers that um, that people can kind of guess at. That's a whole lot of people coming into a country. Are they kind of maligned by Lebanese society at all, or is there a, a broader willingness to, I guess, assist and, and give a safe provide a safe haven for mm. these people it's a really good question because it was something that was quite surprising to us in a way uh, the the disparity between palestinian refugees that have been there for a long time and then new, more newly arrived we'll say you know uh, syrian lef- refugees that have been there past seven years or so um palestinian refugees even if they've been there for generations still don't have uh, actually have very few rights in compared compared to Lebanese citizens. For example, they don't have full Lebanese citizenship, even if they've been living there for 70 years, like some of them have, or, you know, three generations. Um, they can't work in certain uh, occupations. They're banned from working in certain occupations. They can't own property in their own right, so they often uh, ask a Lebanese friend to buy property for them, a trusted friend, obviously, because it can all go quite awry. Um, so it's very sad to see the situation for Palestinians in Lebanon um, that that, the Lebanese government would say we're doing you a favour because there has not been any political settlement for the Israeli-Palestinian crisis conflict so we want you to be able to return should there be a political settlement that has a, a right of return for refugees that left and their descendants that mm. left. So we're actually doing you a favour. But in the meantime, of course, our life for these Palestinians uh, living uh, in Lebanon is... They're actually second class cities, mm. and and I think the well, it's really a city they're living in, and the photographs that that 
um, you've taken really shows that things as simple as electricity supply or internet to these um, houses is actually a mess of wires. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that sort of day-to-day situation, I suppose, for people, the safety of children in such an environment where you're kind of skipping over, it looks like, power lines. Yeah. It's pretty... Um, for sure, Scary, yeah. the, the the situation in Shatila, so that's the Palest- one of the Palestinian refugee camps in Beirut um, that we visited. So Lebanese authorities uh, have very very little to do with it. So it's 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 um, the land is like a one kilometre square, and it's rented, I believe, by the, the UNHCR. Uh, sorry, actually UNRWA, um, the division that deals with Palestinian refugees. Um, but then it's it's almost self-governed after that so lebanon has very little to do with it so any improvements made in there um are made by the people so it started off as you know one or two stories high but because they can't expand uh on the on the footprint of that one kilometer it just goes up and up and up and it's sort of seven seven floors you know seven stories high now um and they just rewire it themselves because there, there isn't any infrastructure supplied by the Lebanese government. So you, you'll walk in there and there's sort of sewage pipes, electricity, um, water pipes all combined, you know, and they're just running above above your head um, in this sort of mismatch of, sort of you know, cobweb-like sort of situation. And, and, you know, we were hearing stories that people uh, had died from, you know, um, doing their own sort of electrical work in there or water pipes had bust next to electric electric um electric lines and and things like that so yeah it's it's an incredible um visual when you walk in there just how condensed it is you know and and you're talking about seven stories and and they're just pressed in on top of each other i mean some of the some of the homes um you know you're walking down a laneway that's just shoulder width you know and it's it's sun could be blazing sun outside but the, the sun just doesn't penetrate this doesn't get to the lower level so you it's it's always damp and and dank and there's you know rats the size of cats and you know um and people are living there you'll just walk past there'll be a doorway and that'll be someone's home um you know sewerage and, and stuff on the on the streets and and things like yeah. that so it's, it's and i suppose we can talk about you know the the situation uh, politically in in lebanon and what can be done and what um, the Lebanese um, government will do for for these communities, but Australia also has a presence in in Beirut. We have immigration officials there. Do, do you have a sense of how that sort of processing is going? Whether people have access to uh, the opportunities that Australia can offer? Um, yeah. So now we'll jump back to Syrian refugees. So we we um, unfortunately had a lot of um, horrible stories from uh, Syrian refugees that are obviously registered with the UNHCR and then they're waiting um, for some sort of resettlement process. And when we were there, we had... Um, we heard some horrible stories that the UNHCR would call them in. They would go for their range of, like, hours and hours of interviews with the families, all the family members, um, two days, sometimes three days' worth of interviews. And then... Um, they would get called in a couple of days later and they would, the UNHCR would say, congratulations, your application has been successful and everyone in the office would be congratulating them. And, um, I mean, you can imagine they're living in squalid conditions, how much of a relief that would be for them. We'll call you in a few days and they would go home to their tent and they would 
uh, it would say goodbye to the people that had met there and, yeah, three days would turn into three months, turn into six months and, I mean, you can imagine how... um, torturous uh that kind of i mean if you've ever waited around for a job (laughs) you know if you've applied for a job then they haven't called you can you imagine this is your whole life and your family's life on the line and you just wait all you can do is wait and wait and wait and yeah months would pass um we met a family that waited for six months before they heard back from the unhcr after they said they would be resettled only to hear that no france had um rejected their application at the other end so they had to now find another country that would be um that would take them um and i think uh, you know the numbers we're talking about and i mean some uh, some figures that got told to me was apparently and we saw a lot of kids when we were there there's apparently four hundred thousand just kids um from the syrian conflict in lebanon uh, over half of which aren't in school and that's over 200,000 children. And you kind of go, look, like, this isn't just the Middle East problem or it's not just Lebanon's problem. When we have 250,000 kids that aren't going to school and a radical group comes to them and their parents and says, look, we'll pay you 30 40 $50 a month for your kid to come and train with us, which is not like so fantastical to think that something like that might happen then I mean their parents have no ideological affiliation with those groups potentially whatsoever but of course they need the money so yeah so that's a big risk that is not just that a problem for that region it's a problem for everybody so yeah in terms of our quota and who we're accepting and um, how many we're accepting I mean personally I think that's that's just not enough in terms of what this problem could potentially be. And not to not to mention, you're going to have you know thousands and th- the, the next generation of Syrians. You know, they're going to what what country are they going to inherit, and are they going to be have that level of education to take the country forward? Mm-hmm. Like this is this is the next generation of Syrians. Like the thousands and thousands of these people are not going to school and not getting education mm. we i mean we are kept somewhat informed of developments in syria and and we hear about the refugee crisis globally and so on but we don't hear a lot of these sorts of stories that you're telling these kind of personal um experiences that people have who are you know hold up in in settlements refugee settlements and trying to find safety have you had um i guess much success in in having your stories um picked up by a sort of you know media organizations and, and that sort of thing because you've essentially gone there off your own back to do your own work as freelancers and, and researchers has there been interest <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredibly difficult uh, thing to do as a freelancer obviously you know on a, on a personal level and funding it and all it's not a, it's not a money-making venture by any stretch um, but that's not why we do it I think the type of work that that I decided to do and, and when I connected with Marika and we started to do this together um, we get all this media coverage when, when bombs are dropping you know there's all this everyone rushes in to, to cover stories when, when there's when there's the crisis <clears throat> and we saw it you know at the beginning of the war and we see it in Mosul and we saw it you know um, in Gaza in 2014 so the media the world's media will rush in and tell that story um, but when the bombs start stop dropping and the, and, the, and what's left the crisis that's left is that they start to dwindle away and the story can easily be forgotten so we go in and try and tell that story that, that 
the bomb might not be dropping, but there's, this is what's left. So you go and meet those people. But the, the media, you know, it, you would think there'd be more space, you know, to have a 24-hour news cycle and websites and things like that. But it's incredibly hard, especially in Australia, to have this sort of work um, published. I mean, people people seem to be uh, war-weary and just, you know, oh, the Syrian crisis, yeah, it's another another story on yeah, the it's Syrian been going crisis. Yeah, such a long time. I wonder, were you, are you planning to go to Syria when it's safe to, to go again as, as a journalist and photojournalist and researcher? Will you follow some of these families back if they actually choose to return? Um, I would... I think Marika and I would both like to travel to Syria for sure um, when it's when it's safe to do so. I'm, I'm not um, I'm not necessarily all about that, you know, the, the conflict zone and stuff like that. Um, it's more the, the humanitarian side of it and the, those stories. We've kept in contact with a few families by sending photographs back and sending small packages and things like that. Um, on the recent trip, I'm not sure how many of those families will actually ever return to Syria, but I'd still like to cover, you know, families returning or, or that, that Syria may one day, um, that may but one day be an option to go back and see that. I'm, I'm not too sure, but, mm. you know, having done, having spent time in, in, in Israel and Palestine, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, I mean, Turkey and Syria are probably the the next um, you know logical step. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's tricky with Syria. Uh, I think even you know there's a lot of talk now about you know the war ending uh, and things like that. Um, uh, for me, it's something like a wait and see attitude. I mean, it's not a joke in terms of security for people that have written or published stuff that may be seen as not being um, pro-government. Um, so I'd be quite cautious about travelling. I'd want to see. I'd want to wait and see what the situation is. And you know, we'd obviously have to be granted visas and things like that to travel. But then also, there's the element of, and I don't know how long that would will go on for necessarily but you know if you're a journalist traveling there um even journalists that travel there now have a have a minder from the government so i've heard that you know they'll go to a family to interview them and they'll have their minder standing in the corner of the room and they'll ask the family so you know how's life now how do you feel safe yes yes i feel completely safe completely everything's great no problems at all here so, yeah, what kind of story? And, you know, like we experienced that to a little bit of an extent in, in Lebanon already, I think. Um, so, yeah, like the kind of picture that you're going to get out of Syria as a, as a official journalist is also something that you have to contend with for your own ethics and morals as well. I think we have to stop talking to you, although we could keep going all day. Where can people find your work if they're um, wanting to kind of follow up with, with these stories and images? Yeah, Google is always... We've got right. very Google, Googleable <laughs> names. We've both got a website, but... Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, well, lots of our published work for um, Australian outlets and overseas outlets is, is online. So I'm sure if you just uh, Google either one of our names, it'll it'll definitely come up. And you can find those names on our Facebook page, on the Grapevine Facebook page. But um, Marika Sisnowski and also Darian Trainer, uh, thank you so much, both of you, for um, coming into Triple R today. Thanks, Thanks very guys. Much. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.